Patrick, joining us today, we have two of the foremost leaders when it comes to talking about court innovation, David Slayton and Judge Scott Schlegel. What makes our guests today so interesting is that they have some really specific and important skill sets that jump to mind when you think about it. And I'm going to say two, and I know there's more, uh, but the two obvious ones for me are both looking for partnerships to achieve more than any single judge can achieve by themselves, um, and finding straight from the box uh, tools, things that are, are ready to go and, and, and applying them. And you know, Patrick, what's interesting about our guest today also is that Judge Slagle happens to be the first guest ever on the Innovation Network. Um, this was when it was a brown bag lunch series. And what's great about that is in that conversation, it was early on in the pandemic, and these were the early stages of the off-the-shelf solutions he was applying to navigate COVID. And now we're two years later. What this is achieving now that we've had you know, at least two solid years of truly jumping into this innovation and, and, and watching it work. So let's dive in and start our conversation with David Slayton and Scott Schlegel. Welcome to the ABA Center for Innovation's Innovation Network podcast, a podcast dedicated to finding and highlighting the opportunities of the future of law and bringing them into your legal practice today. We will explore new partnerships, unforeseen successes, and reveal the blueprints that are already being used to develop the future of legal. Along this journey, our guests will challenge you to let go of the status quo and dare to imagine a legal economy where creativity and collaboration are the fuel and your new ability to serve every person with a legal need is your financial reward. And now, here are your hosts for the Innovation Network podcast, Joey Gartner and Patrick Pallas. Before we jump into the show today, I'd like to let you know about a new project on the Center for Innovation's website called the Innovation Events Calendar. This is a calendar and map that catalogs global events around legal innovation, including conferences, speaker series, and webinars. We're going to highlight one of the events on that list. This is going to be Tom Martin and the American Legal Technology Awards. Tom, welcome to the Innovation Network. Thanks for being here. Hey, Joey. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. Tell us, what are the American Legal Technology Awards? Yeah, thanks. So the American Legal Technology Awards is our way of recognizing talent and accomplishment in the legal innovation space. We're finally getting to have the in-person event. So this is going to be the first in-person event. Where is it and when is it? Yeah, so it's October 9th. It's going to be in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, it's actually happening on the Sunday, right before the Monday that CleoCon starts. What's going to be happening on October 9th in Nashville? Uh, we're going to have the award schedule with eight different categories. Alex Sue, actually, the social uh, media phenom, is going to be making an appearance as a, as a, as a host. So that's going to be a lot of fun. And then we're going to have drinks, dancing, and it's a full-blown dinner. Tell us a little bit about what categories and where can people submit nominations and up until when. Submit nominations at AmericanLegalTechnology.com. There's a big button to submit nominations. Just click on that and you can submit one. There's eight different categories. Whatever you're doing, where you're innovating, we could recognize you. And so please submit a nomination. But it includes everything from like innovation within the court system to law firms, law departments, technology, and everything in between. So if you're running a startup or if you're a lawyer who's you know implementing some of these innovative practices at your office, take a look. AmericanLegalTechnology.com. We'd love to recognize those that are on the cutting edge. And you said until July 31st. Tom, who are some of the past winners of these awards? Yeah, so we have 
have a pretty distinguished list. We have uh, Judge Scott Schlegel. Uh, we have Litera. We have Glenn Rodden of Legal Services Corporation. Connie Brenton, Clear Brief. I mean, we just have an amazing selection. We definitely would encourage anyone to submit their nomination because you never know. And conveniently today, past winner Judge Scott Schlegel is going to be one of our guests on the Innovation Network. So Tom, thank you so much for joining us and telling us about you are going to submit nominations. Remember, you have until July 31st. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Joey. Joining us today, we have two fantastic guests. First, Judge Scott Schlegel, who has the unique honor of being the first guest to appear on the Innovation Network twice. He first appeared back before this was a podcast and was our first guest ever. So we're very grateful that he's returned to us today. Also joining us is David Slayton, who is the Vice President of Court Consulting for the NCSC or National Center for State Courts. So Judge Slagle, David, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thanks for having me, Janet. Good to be with you, David. Good to see you, Judge. Good to be here. Patrick, these are two of the foremost leaders when it comes to talking about court innovation that we have with us today. All right. Sorry, gentlemen, you're on. You're just going to start with an easy question for him. What are the roles of courts when it comes to bridging the access to justice gap? You know, I think it's really important to think about the fact that, and we've we've seen this more in the last couple of years than I think ever before, or at least maybe recognized it more in the last couple of years, which is how many people are out there that have traditionally not had access to courts. Um, all the legal problems that are out there and existing, um, you know, people just haven't been able to gain access, whether that's because they didn't have transportation or they couldn't get off of work or they didn't have childcare or whatever. And all of a sudden, in the last two years, when we started doing things a little bit differently, all of a sudden we started seeing these folks in our courtrooms. And so I think it was became readily apparent that, I mean, I think we knew it was a problem before, but I don't think any of us really knew how big of a problem it was. And so it's been really, I think, eye-opening to see how big of an issue it is and the fact that it's not just people thumbing their nose at the system, um, which is sort of what I think some people thought, you know, like the people weren't coming to court because they just didn't care about taking care of business. And all of a sudden we've seen that change. And so I, I think, you know, it really puts upon the courts and the legal community a, a real uh, spotlight on the fact that there is a huge access justice problem out there. And it's it's incumbent upon all of us, courts, uh, the legal community to work together to figure out ways to better solve that problem. When just look at the model, you know, just look at it from a business perspective. You know, as a judge, I understand my role and I understand what my purpose is in the courthouse and in the courtroom. And I understand how important that role is. But if I look at it from a client centered as opposed to a judge centered without removing that kind of authority and removing those roles, what we look at and see is, look, it's my job to help you resolve your matter, whether it's a criminal matter or a civil matter. And so if I can reduce those barriers so that you can gain access to the courts and you can get through the system in an efficient and effective way, why wouldn't I look at that model and say, hey, how about I reduce that barrier? Because that barrier doesn't make sense. There are a number of barriers or a number of procedures that we have in place that, you know, shouldn't be touched. You know, we don't need to revise that procedure. But if you look at it just from a workflow standpoint, there are a lot of things in that workflow that could be improved upon. And so we just use simple technologies to kind of help through that process and make it more efficient and more effective. I love the approach you just took there about the courts being uh, user-centric rather than being lawyer or judge-centric. I mean, I think all of us as lawyers and maybe as judges, this is a place we go to work. This is the job site. This is where we go to work. This is where we do our work. And everyone has to come to us to do the work with us. And the idea of being consumer-centric and saying, 
a courthouse is not a place or a court is not a place, it's a service, is a, is a big shift. And I'd like to talk to you both about that in a minute. Uh, t- tell me how we make this shift or how this shift is being made to court being a service, not a place. Yeah, I think you need to just look at, the, again, the question of why are we doing what we're doing? You know, it's, you know, how do I become available to you? And in some circumstances, that is the courthouse where you have everybody present. But as I just mentioned, that doesn't mean every part and parcel of what we do means courthouse people in there. And so what different workflows can I break apart and break down? So in a criminal matter, it might be, yeah, if you're going to have a criminal trial, you absolutely need to be in the courthouse. But if you're dealing with a civil pretrial hearing, maybe Zoom or another video conferencing platform is the way to go. So if you just start breaking down it and asking, why are we doing what we're doing? And if you have a good reason, stick with it. There are plenty of other things that don't make sense that we need to work on. So I've just kind of go through that process in every workflow that you're dealing with and um, keep asking yourself, why am I doing that? And that's how we've always done it is a terrible answer. I have a good euphemism I use with that, which is just because we've always done it that way doesn't mean it's not incredibly stupid. And, you know, you think about courts as a service and, and not a place. It, this is not just courts, right? So let's just say that we were to say banks, you can only get banking if you go to the bank. So many other areas of our lives, we would never accept that we have to go to a place to get things done that can obviously be done remotely or be done as a service. So again, yes, our courtrooms are beautiful. Our courthouses are beautiful. They're also very intimidating. There are also huge barriers where people are not willing to come in and take care of the business they need business for. It's made for us, right? It's They don't see it the same way we see it. And so I really think kind of this, this shift which I see happening before my eyes after all my years of working in the courts. I see it happening where judges, attorneys, others, court administrators, others involved in the system are really seeing that these are customers after all, which by the way, I will tell you just three or four years ago to refer to litigants as customers would have been like shocking. Someone would have said, what do you mean customers? Like that's changing. And I think that's a really positive thing. You know, courts have so many pain points to them. I mean, I, it just seems like a litany of pain points from taking time off work to go to court, getting childcare, finding parking, right? And then you have to go there because you're probably addressing something that's a challenge or maybe it's criminal or maybe it's civil and costs you money. You don't want to go. I mean, there's just a million pain points waiting in time. I'm, I'm wondering, as, as you both have dug so deeply into court innovation and spent these last years, in particular with, with COVID, looking at these pain points, what have been your priorities? What have been the things you've wanted to solve first, knowing that there are so many pain points we have to work through to solve eventually? I think back to the early days of the pandemic. Right. We were all challenged with how are we going to do this? And one of the the first considerations that every state court trial court across the country had to decide is what are we going to do? Like like literally what types of hearings are we going to do? And there was a lot there were a lot of courts that said, well, we're only going to handle emergencies. And quickly, I think most courts said, wait for the litigants who need access to courts to them, whether we define it as emergency or not to them, it's an emergency. Whatever that issue is that's going on in their lives is an emergency. It's the most important thing happening in their lives. You know, stepping back and realizing we're here to help people solve their problems, resolve their issues. And if we, if we can take it from that perspective, you know, that's really important. So then that, that just really leads you right to how do we deliver the design and deliver the best system to be able to help them resolve their problems? That can take on all kinds of different ways of looking at it. Maybe that's a 
you know, some kind of an online dispute resolution system that helps them try to, you know, figure it out or a triaging system to help them even figure out if they even have a problem, a legal problem that can be resolved. Um, you know, what types of technology can we put in place or systems that we can put in place that really help guide them to the place where they need to be to help resolve their problems. That's to me, that's the biggest challenge for us today. And yeah, y'all have heard me say this a hundred times, but the biggest pain point for me or the biggest frustration with me was just getting a date with the court. I mean, why is that such a difficult process? Why do I have to sit there like the DMV model forever and ever and ever? You know, again, I had 92 cases on my criminal docket today. Why do 92 people have to show up at 9 a.m. and sit there until we get to their case? It doesn't have to be that way. It never had to be that way. So uh, you just mentioned it, David. People might lack transportation. They might need to drop their children off at school. They might have other things to do. As long as I get through the case on the day that I need to get through it, why do I care if it's 9, 10, 11, or noon? I don't. And so the fact of using an online calendar and treating it like a dental appointment is you know, kind of how we've been doing it. Same thing with the civil side of it. You know, Why do you have to send a runner or call the minute clerk on the, the phone and leave a message because they're not there? Or you know, why does it take so long for one piece of paper with a date on it to get to the judge for signature. And then the date has passed because somebody lost that piece of paper. So to me, that was just a very simple, easy fix of utilizing a simple, inexpensive online calendar and giving you the dates I have a year in advance. Pick your own date. It's all good. I'm telling you the days and the times that I'm available. I think this points back to the issue that I think we all are recognizing that the system we have now is built and designed for us. You know, so you think about it, I mean, the easiest way for a judge or a court staff person to do things is to just do it in the courtroom. We show up, everybody shows up at nine. The judge just goes to work and goes on the bench. The clerk just goes to work, walks in the courtroom. Everybody else had to drive there, pay for parking, go through security, wait in line, sit there and wait for three or four hours till their, their, their 15 minutes of fame in, in the courtroom. The calendaring thing, like call me, leave the message. I'll, you know, basically it's designed for us. And that we just, that just can't work anymore. We've got to flip that upside down because at the end of the day, you said it a second ago, Patrick, we're a service. And if we're a service industry, that's not acceptable. As Judge Schlegel was saying, I mean, I've been to a dentist where I've had to wait four or five hours, but then that's not my dentist anymore. I choose somewhere else. I go find someone else that's going to be able to be meet my needs better. And quite frankly, we've, we're in the same position where we really got to start looking at it from that perspective. I feel like the two of you are approaching this problem from different directions, uh, not out of philosophy, but because of the positions you hold. Uh, Judge Schlegel, I feel like you're spending a lot of time making this system user-friendly for the user purposes. And, and David, I feel like because of your position at the, um, uh, at the National Center for State Courts that you're helping bring judges to a place to offer better services. You're helping them organize. And I just want to juxtapose these things for a minute. And I'll start with you, uh, David. You guys created this pandemic uh, rapid response team, you know, when, this, when the pandemic hit to help judges find a way to get through this faster. And I'm, I'm curious... Uh, a, just talk about the program a little bit and B, to tell me how it's worked for you to help bring judges together and give them tools to provide better services. Yeah, I, I think uh, you happen to have one of the best here on the podcast with you, Judge Schlegel, who's really helping lead the way in this area. But, you know, there are lots of places where um, judges don't know as much about technology or know about the best ways to innovate. And so, yeah, a part of our, a large part of our role is trying to help judges and court administrators and clerks really see what the potential is 
for making change so that they can be like what Judge, you know, what you describe as Judge Schlegel, which is how can we better design a system that's more user centric, that we can actually better serve the public. One of the ways we did that was through the uh, National Center for State Courts, uh, Conference Chief Justices, Conference State Court Ministers, all the acronyms here, uh, the Pandemic Rapid Response Team. The goal of that was to really try to, quite frankly, just help people know what to do. Uh, we, we, when we hit the pandemic in March of 2020, most judges and court administrators and clerks said, I have no idea what to do. None. I don't even know which direction to go. So really the, the purpose there was to really give the uh, judges and court administrators and clerks and others really actionable tools that they could actually take and implement to really just continue to function and to make sure that they were providing a service to the folks that needed them. Now on this side of it, we're really trying to say, okay, we surprisingly in some ways found out these things work really, really well, despite the fact we've been trying to say for 20 years, maybe these things would work, but now we know they work. So how do we keep them? And how do we keep from going back, sliding back to the way, as I said a minute ago, the way that it's easiest for us internally, um, really that's the real pull is like, we've got to continue to remember that the tremendous benefits were to the public and the court users. And we've got to keep our focus there. We can't turn around and say, well, the way we were doing it before was so much easier for me. And Right. We're going to return back to normal now. That was just a temporary uh, detour, exactly. right? David, there's another cool uh, project program the NCSC does that I want to hear a little bit about because I think it's, it's, it's creative. It's a way to get around some of these problems um, that judges are struggling with. And it's the court backlog reduction simulator. It just sounds cool. It sounds so you know, scientific. Like this is something you have on a NASA spacecraft. Right. Yeah, we, uh, we, I don't know how many hours we spent trying to come up with that name, but honestly, that, that, was, a, that was the name we came up with. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting thing. I mean, unfortunately, uh, because of the pandemic, many courts have a pretty significant backlog, primarily in the criminal um, realm, generally in the felony area, because, you know, we could do a lot of things remotely via video during the pandemic, except for criminal jury trials and things like that. So a lot of courts are facing a pretty significant backlog that, you know, some courts are saying could take four or five, six years at best to resolve. And that's just not acceptable to any court out there. And so what we've been working on and we'll be releasing it, I believe in the next month, uh, maybe I shouldn't overpromise here, but I think in the next month, uh, an actual online tool where judges can go in, estimate what their backlog is, because quite frankly, some of them don't even know the extent of the backlog, and then begin to think about, well, if I were to implement this solution that would reduce my case filings by 10 a month or increase my dispositions by 20 a month or whatever, what would that do to impact the backlog? And how quickly would I be able to get back to sort of a normal caseload? Uh, it's really exciting and it's interesting. And I will, it's really the thing I think that shows that this is such a huge need out there is when we announced this earlier this year, the National Center for State Courts sends out a newsletter. We announced it. It was the number one clicked on um, thing we've ever sent out. I mean, I think everybody is trying to figure out how do we deal with this issue? So trying to find these tools and provide ways that judges and court staff can really deal with real issues like backlog um, is what we do. Such an amazing world out there. And this, this conversation is so good. And I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry we have to wrap this up. Gentlemen, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure having you here. Can't wait to have another part of this conversation. It's a pleasure. It's an honor. you rock stars. Thank you. As always, you can follow the Center for Innovation at ABA Innovation on Twitter. And don't forget to share this episode out on social media using the hashtag ABACIN. 
The Innovation Network is a production from the American Bar Association, the Center for Innovation. Opinions of our guests do not necessarily reflect those of the ABA. Editing for the Innovation Network is performed by Ben Woodson and Joey Gartner. Coming up on the Innovation Network. I'm a trial court judge with general jurisdiction, so I handle civil, criminal, and domestic, and I'm a specialty court judge. So when the pandemic hit, we had probably about 300 specialty court participants who are the highest risk participants in any probation program uh, within a community. And clearly, you couldn't touch all those people physically like you used to. You couldn't bring them into court. People were just trying to figure out how to use Zoom. So it wasn't like you could just get everybody on a, a Zoom hearing right away. And so Tom was able to build a, a pretty simple basic chatbot. Well, simple to me, probably difficult on the technical side, uh, but it really just helped us triage, you know. We know for years and decades, we've had studies that have shown, as Judge Slagle was saying, a simple text reminder is the most effective way to make sure a criminal defendant shows up to court. That's pretty simple, pretty cheap. And guess what? Would save a ton of money to the system because you don't have sheriffs out having to go arrest people. You don't have jails having to house them. And oh, by the way, a pretty tremendous benefit to the litigants on the other side who aren't being arrested and thrown in jail, losing jobs, losing homes, losing cars, whatever else. 